If you use the internet on a daily basis, and chances are you do, you probably don't put much thought into cybersecurity. You know, your network connections, the pages you visit, the files you download. You should be thinking about these all the time. Welcome to And Security for All. Your host is Kim Hakem. We're here to help you understand, in general terms, how and why your cybersecurity should be kept in check. Now, here is Kim Hakem. Welcome to another episode of And Security for All, everyone. I'm Kim Hakem, your host. Today, again, we have two sides of our listeners. We have our LinkedIn Live listeners today, and we have our listeners tuning in on Voice America. So welcome to all of our new listeners. Welcome back to our regular listeners. You can find this show every week at this time on Friday, Pacific Time at 12 p.m. on the Business Network of Voice America. For those of you that don't know, I am the CEO of FutureCon Events. We host cybersecurity events throughout North America, educating cybersecurity practitioners on the ongoing daily cybersecurity threats that we are all facing. Today, we have a very, very unique episode, something we haven't talked about in the past. We're going to talk about bridging the gap between human trafficking and threat intelligence. Today, my guest is Larry Cameron. He's the CISO at the, the at Anti-Human Trafficking Intelligence Initiative, ATIA, ATII, out of Nova Scotia, Canada. He's an experienced chief uh, information security officer with, he's skilled in data centers, system architecture, management support, cybersecurity, the anti-human trafficking Intelligence Initiative is a nonprofit organization that's dedicated to fighting and abolishing modern slavery and uh, the labor of sex and human trafficking. So super excited to have him on the show. He's also going to be on one of um, our upcoming shows, a FutureCon event on May 13th. He is going to be on a panel and he's going to be talking about the same topic that we're talking about today, bridging the gap between human trafficking and threat intelligence. He um, will be joined by Victor Bittner. He was my last week's guest. He is the Vice President of High Technology Crime Intelligence Association out of Canada. Morgan Wright, who's a cyber terrorism and cyber crime analyst on Fox News and also Chief Security uh, advisor for Sentinel One, Victor DeMora. He's a federal police investigator for Interpol Ottawa, and he is on the human trafficking side for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. If you're interested in attending that event, just check it out on our website at futureconevents.com. So let's get started with our show today. Let me welcome my guest, Larry Cameron. Welcome to the show, Larry. Thanks for having me, Kim. That that's a lot of a lot of words, a lot of tongue twisters. So sorry if I uh, messed up your introduction, but welcome to the show. Um, you're joining us from Canada, out of Nova Scotia. Before we even dive into this, I know you guys are a real hot spot for COVID. So how's everything going on in your area? Uh, I'm in Eastern Canada or Atlantic Canada. We don't have a high amount of cases over here because we're uh, we're more spread out and less population. I think uh, Toronto has more uh, more people than Nova Scotia combined everywhere. So well, that's good to hear because that you're on the so you, if you're on the eastern side, that's such a beautiful side of Canada. Can't mm -hmm. wait to be able to get back out there and travel over to Canada. So let's start and talk about you a little bit, Larry, because it's such a fascinating and interesting job that you do. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the history and how you ended up with the Anti-Human Trafficking Intelligence Initiative? So I actually, uh, I got started in this area probably around, I think it was January 2017. Uh, I had a client that reported uh, an incident to me and I ended up doing forensics and uh, reporting that to law enforcement and find out two days later he had his door booted in he was arrested he was charged and it was such an adrenaline rush um, uh, I was pretty much hooked since then and I've been in the fight well, I was looking at your profile, and it looks like prior to this, you were kind of working in that. What were you doing prior to this? It seems like it was associated with the same type of work. 
Yeah, so I was doing a virtual CISO, virtual CTO, uh, IT as a service. So you walk into a business, I, I do everything from the firewall, the wireless, the VoIP system, the wiring, IoT. Could be anything that comes up, servers, uh, exchanges, SQL. So pretty much infrastructure and, uh, you know, supporting businesses. Well, it's no secret that the CISO world and being a CISO is you guys have a tough, tough job every day. And I imagine yours is even elevated with what you're doing. So can you tell us a little more about the mission in your daily CISO challenges that you are currently having? So Anti-Human Trafficking Intelligence Initiative, we uh, founded to promote corporate social responsibility and economic social governance in uh, financial institutions. So we provide them with the tools, whether it be our custom data set, uh, also training and red flags, typologies uh, for human trafficking. And also we help them implement any human trafficking uh, programs within their organization and compliance programs. So can you break that down a little bit? What does that look like? And are you actually, you know, are, are, are you seeing this in corporate America or, you know, corporate global inside these corporations? Oh, yeah, definitely. And uh, right now, uh, financial institutions, they usually use transaction monitoring. So they're monitoring the transactions for patterns, uh, you know, kind of that bring up a red flag. So our data sets, it plugs into their systems so they can actually scrub their customer base against our data set, match up uh, anything from names or businesses, addresses, uh, email addresses, phone numbers. Uh, once they get a match there, that kind of gives them a red flag. It'll trigger enhanced due diligence checks. And then that's when the compliance officer, uh, BSA, Bank Secrecy Act, or a risk management people will go through the account with a kind of fine tooth comb so they can get more context within their investigation. And, uh, you know, if a suspicious activity is detected, then that's when they fill out what we call a SAR, a suspicious activity report, which goes to, you know, the FinCEN in the U.S. or FinTrack in Canada. So how, what is the, because I know we have a lot of, this is probably going to be one of our most popular shows because it's just something we don't hear about a lot. We hear about this on the news. Um, there's so much behind the scenes. When I was going through some of your, uh, some of your preps for that panel, some of the things I saw were pretty shocking and pretty scary. So what, what does that look like once you, once you hone in on a, a suspect or somebody that's doing something like that, what are the next steps on your side of things? Uh, well, we have uh, law enforcement partners that we re reach out to. Sometimes it's jurisdictional, local, state, federal, or even international law enforcement. And even last year, we trained law enforcement from, I think it was almost 25 countries. So let's break down some of this and understand really what that means, the bridge between human trafficking and threat intelligence. We were talking about pre-show, you know, some, some words that have relevance to what that means. So let's start with, with blockchain. Can you first give us kind of a simplified explanation of what is blockchain and then how does it help with human trafficking? So blockchain, uh, it's a digital ledger. Uh, transactions are stored in blocks. It allows them to send transactions or, you know, kind of like a digital store uh, to another person with a wallet. Um, so these blocks are chained together with a cryptographic algorithm. So Bitcoin, have you ever heard of Bitcoin? Yep, I think everybody has. <laughs> Bitcoin's a cryptocurrency. It's it's a form of blockchain. Um, so it helps the trafficker in several ways. I mean, it, they get to skip financial institutions and like regulatory compliance programs. They don't get, you know, uh, run through KYC and all that. It can even be used to avoid sanctions. Uh, some nation state do that. Uh, they use cryptocurrency to avoid 
sanctions and all that. Um, so it doesn't really help the trafficker much uh, outside of that. It helps us do our job because Bitcoin is a public ledger. So just picture having every single bank with all of the accounts listed with all the transactions, but there's just a unique identifier for their name. So similar to that, so it makes the job much easier, uh, much easier for de-anonymization and, you know, how that would overlap with threat intelligence are, it's basically attribution. So you want to know if that address was involved in, could be drugs, weapons, terrorism, the dark web, uh, sanctioned addresses, mixers, washers, or tumblers, which are used for laundering, uh, child exploitation, or scams. If you label that wallet with that attribution, then it, it's kind of obvious what it's used for. So when, for instance, you try to follow funds, uh, you can see this attribution. Uh, even if uh, cryptocurrency exchanges, if they have a a program like for blockchain forensics, it'll actually tell them who they're uh, who they're receiving funds from and who their users are sending funds to. So, so you're using it for digital identity. So, how? Um, I, I think a lot of people are very still confused with blockchain. You know, it's it's. I think there's a lot of cybersecurity folks that are watching this episode, and they know it more than some, maybe some of our average listeners. But again, when you're using it for d digital identity and they're transferring money through Bitcoin, um, where does this normally? I guess you know, investigators get in this, and the federal, the feds probably get involved. But how does it? How do you finally stop that? Uh, so normally, there's a lot of uh, a lot of red tape. I mean, they have to actually send to an exchange uh, in order. So it can be frozen at the exchange level or particular wallets, but uh, sometimes you can't stop it. They can just keep on sending it forever if they just generate their own keys. So. Uh, it's not only that, but when they're transferring around and, you know, they might have sent to an exchange in the past, could have been five years ago, but still, you know, even though it was their first transaction, they might have submitted KYC on that exchange. So, which is the driver's license. It could be a selfie of them holding their ID, uh, could be their address, phone number, IP address, the wallets that they have generated. Sometimes they have multiple Bitcoin wallets on the same exchange, uh, tons of information about the transactions. So, you know, even though they're performing transactions, you know, today, uh, they could have made a mistake and sent to an exchange five years ago and you can still find out their identity because it's the person who owns that wallet uh, that's protected by a private key. So I noticed in, you know, some of your papers that you have prepared for this upcoming panel, there was lots of identifiable people that you actually had listed in there. So did these perpetrators know that you guys are following them and they they just managed to get through the red tape of all of this? I mean, when, when is enough enough for them when they are almost close to being caught? So for cryptocurrency, uh, the, the main thing is to get attribution. So you'll see some slides uh, of this in the future con, but, you know, basically anybody that they're transacting with that's regulatory compliance, if they try to, you know, cash out on an exchange, then the exchange could be notified, uh, you know, by an alert that they've been involved in this activity. So let's talk a little bit then about um, um, understanding the forensics of financial intelligence and compliance. First of all, if you can break that down for us, what does that mean? And what are, are there certain compliances that have to be followed? What can you break that down? Yeah, so financial compliance, uh, it's basically what banks use. They can have multiple data sets, uh, there could be, 
uh, watch lists. There could be sanctions. There could be politically exposed persons. There could be negative news. Uh, Panama Papers, uh, or even anti-human trafficking. Uh, so, you know, we provide data sets to the financial institutions that kind of go above and beyond their transaction monitoring. So it'll, uh, you know, once they scrub their customer base and they get the alerts, then they have more context within that investigation. So it's more financial intelligence and compliance. We have, uh, we have a system that we use that we keep on adding data sets and we cross-reference uh, the data we have with those data sets to kind of create various dashboards. One, for instance, would be PPP loans. So we take our data set, we run it through entity resolution, which is kind of like machine learning AI. It'll pull out uh, businesses essentially from our data set. So if there's government registration data and you have uh, our data sets, you kind of figure out which businesses are involved. So then, you know, we run it through the PPP loan data because we know they're legit businesses, and then we can see, oh, well, these people are selling sexual services, and they're also getting PPP loans. So sometimes it's really difficult to prosecute for human trafficking. So what's easier than fraud and money laundering? That's crazy that they were getting PPE money. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And I would imagine, I already know the answer to this question, but I would assume there was a huge uptick of human trafficking during the last year because of all the kids and everyone that's more, they're more online, they're doing, I mean, what, have we, what do you have any kind of statistics on that? Uh, not off rate, not offhand. I know it has increased and there's been a lot more reports to uh, National Center for Missing Exploited Children. It's so scary. So, um, well, let's talk about open source intelligence. Again, I'm using some words that these are the things you're dealing with. Um, can you describe what that is to our listeners and break that down a little bit and how this helps you in your job? Yeah, so open source intelligence is essentially everything that's publicly available. So anything from Google or people searches or different uh, lookups for, uh, you know, who's the owner of this land, uh, anything that's publicly available. It could be uh, criminal data that you want to look up. It could be school data. It could be social media or websites or business registrations. Anything you can find that's not protected by username and password or sometimes if it's free, then that's considered open source as well. So what are some of these things? How have they helped you in doing your job? Uh, so we do open source intelligence and investigations on the data that we collect. So we have a data collections team uh, that collects data for a data set. We do a lot of open source intelligence on uh, businesses, phone numbers, emails, addresses, or a lot of other identifiers, uh, you know, finding out who owns that business uh, and uh, more information about the business online that can help us link them to human trafficking. So usually the feedback <laughs> on sites kind of tells all, you know what I mean? When you're investigating a business that's selling those services and, you know, generally about, I think 30% are underage when you find them trafficking. So I noticed that in some of your papers that you had been prepared, you know, there was some Nigeria social lounges or whatever it was, but then the owners of those lounges happened to be in Florida. So can you like, how do you, how'd you connect that together and, and, and how do you go about matching that up? So that was uh, our data set. We provided it to uh, uh, one of the groups under DHS, so it would be National Targeting Center. So we provide them with information. Uh, they'll send us back hits, and then uh, we investigate and provide them with additional intel on that. 
Uh, so that one actually started in the UK. I was able to uh, get quite a bit of information on the, the business in the UK, but we were also uh, used Maltigo, which is kind of like threat intelligence, similar to open source intelligence, where you can gather information about all of those uh, uh, from all different APIs. It could be up to 70 APIs. So we found a link to that one in Nigeria, and then they had the web page. So I checked historic who is data, and I was able to find the administrator in Florida and uh, the businesses that they run and go back and forth to Nigeria. So it's kind of, you know, from the UK to Nigeria to the US, I mean, it's that's more indicative of an organized crime group. So because of some of this digital data that you're finding and, you know, how you're tracing this stuff, are, are kids being found because of this information that you're patching together? Yep, we had quite a bit of a success. Uh, well, we also work with National Child Protection Task Force. Uh, you know, as a judge on the past two trace labs events, so uh, on the Conant, the intelligence conference, and another capture the flag. So trace labs, they hunt for missing persons as well. And I also work with local, state, and federal international law enforcement on various cases. So we've had success there. Well, I think a lot of us, you know, are, are you know, our, our knowledge of what human trafficking looks like is usually through TV shows or, you know, God forbid anybody ha would have this happen to them. So you almost think that if it would happen, you're never going to see, you know, this person again. So it is, it, it, it feels, it looks good to at least know that there's hope out there. How, how has that changed over the last five years? Um, well, I, I think there's a rather low rate of recovery now, uh, you know, based on the amount of people. There's 40 million people entrapped in slavery right now globally. Wow. And, you know, there's labor trafficking and then there's sex trafficking. But, uh, you know, I've heard some stats as low as 1% recovery. Wow. And, you know, considering that, uh, even the statistics in Canada – uh, Nova Scotia, where I'm from, it has the largest rate in Canada. Wow. But again, they're only basing those statistics on what they know uh, and, you know, what they prosecuted. You know, what about all the other 99%? Is there a higher portion, like globally, where, you, where they're going, or is it just a multitude of anywhere globally where they're trafficking? Uh, it's global. Some countries are worse than others, but, uh, you know, every country is a source country uh, and every country could be a destination country. Uh, same with, I mean, here in Nova Scotia, it's more of a source province. So they take people from here and they move them out west. So typically to Montreal or sometimes New Brunswick, but uh, Ontario uh, and further east or west. Well, I know that Canada, I know for a fact your borders are kind of tough because, um, you know, I just, from my experience of going there. So what are the security measures when people are crossing the border? Is any, is, is, or if they're getting on an airplane, you know, um, I fly a lot. I try to always, you know, be, I always look out and just make sure I'm not seeing anything strange because I would report it. What are there? Do you have tougher restrictions in Canada when it comes to border crossing the border and and the agents, you know, being educated of what to look for? Uh, it's not really stricter in Canada. I wouldn't say it's any better than any other country. Um, you know, they do provide training to them, but again, they need more uh, direct training. I mean, some airlines say I've heard of some rescues. But, uh, you know, everybody should be getting more training on human trafficking, what to look for. Uh, sometimes it can be mistaken for other stuff. But generally, if you see someone that they can't look you in the eye, uh, 
somebody else is holding their passport. Uh, there's plenty of different indicators, but uh, yeah, generally it's it's a, it's a hit or miss. So we have a comment from one of our listeners. Ivan asked, "What what um, can we as citizens do to help you with your investigations?" If you see it, report it. Um, you know, we do have a task force that investigates a lot of this stuff and reports it. Um, the best bet would be to focus uh, more on local things and uh, because it's in every community, it's in every province in Canada, it's in every state in the U.S. Uh, there's not a place that it doesn't happen. So, I mean... You know, if you notice it, report it. Uh, in the U.S., uh, there's National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. There's a hotline there. In Canada, there's uh, the Canadian Center for Child Protection Cyber Tip Line. So, uh, Evangelina, and thank you for our listeners for making comments. Um, her question is, so what about prevention? What can we do to prevent it from happening to our family, neighbors, and communities? Very, very good question. Well, if you notice uh, changes in your children, uh, maybe they're gone more, maybe they make new friends, make sure that you meet your child's friends, have them come over, uh, make sure, you know, drugs is another thing, uh, education is another thing, uh, you know, make sure they're educated uh, and they do their homework. Um, what else? There's such like foster uh, kids, they have a high rate of exploitation and trafficking. Um, it's basically across the board. I don't have all the risks in front of me uh, off the top of my head, but, you know, there's quite a bit, mental health, uh, keep an eye on who they're talking to, be careful online, uh, if you have a young child, then you should kind of keep an eye on their social media, because once you connect to the internet, there's a chance of being exploited, and it, it does happen a lot, even on gaming sites, uh, you know, whether it be Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, Snapchat, um, you know, make sure the child knows what to do in those situations as well. So if, um, you know, somebody says something inappropriate, tell them not to delete it or block them. Uh, you know, generally you take a screenshot. You can't do that on Snapchat unless they're, uh, they're notified. So get another camera, take a picture of that, make sure you get their username, uh, don't always report it to Facebook right away. Contact law enforcement. Make sure you have all the evidence uh, that you have. I mean, as a parent, you can even take that phone and socially engineer, try to get more information out of them. Set up, set up a meeting, but don't go. But have law enforcement meet them. And just from my experience of what I've been doing, I, w I would say, you know, make sure that if you have teenagers in the house, there's, there's, it's so easy to monitor what they're doing, you know, get on, get on that network, make sure you, you know, you can shut down the Wi-Fi on certain devices in your house at a certain time, make sure you're staying on top of your kids' social media, because it's just been a frenzy of you, you see new social media sites popping up now, like there's one called UBO that it's it's almost like a tinder for kids you know and that's just full of predators on that so it, it's it's a very um scary world definitely different than you know when i was a kid you know so so you know going back a little bit on some of the things we were talking about let's go back to digital forensics and let's how does that help you first of all what is digital forensics and would that be kind of what i was seeing where i saw the one person that was living in florida but yet he was running a nigeria nightclub so so what does that digital forensics and how's it helping you with your mission so that would be more open source intelligence, that case uh, that you're referring to, but digital forensics. Uh, so let's say in the case where, you know, I got into this, uh, 
you know, when they booted down the doors and they arrested the guy, they collected his devices, his mobile devices, his computers, everything, USB sticks. They took them back to the, the detachment and they ran forensics on them, which is digital forensics. So with that, there's, uh, you get a lot of information uh, out of that, uh, and you can run reports, you can uh, get picture data, so EXIF data, which is kind of like metadata, can tell you the camera that it was taken with, uh, serial number, author, or it could be, you know, 20 different fields you can get just out of a picture. But you can also get an MD5 hash. So that MD5 hash allows you to... Uh, detect the same picture. So let's say if, you know, I took a picture and I sent it to my friend. So those pictures would be identified as the same picture by the MD5 hash. But uh, let's say if you changed it to black and white or CPR or something. So those are essentially now different pictures, you know, because they would have a different hash. But you can do stuff like photo DNA. So we create, uh, we have data and then we create the MD5 hash from the digital forensics. Uh, we export it from a report. And then with that same data, we can uh, run another scan and kind of generate different signatures. So photo DNA signatures. Uh, so that helps do kind of like pictures. Then we export uh, data in a kind of like a VIX format, which allows us to use those signatures in any application that's geared toward crimes against children. It's a general standard, uh, standards uh, format, the VIX. So going back a little bit, we were talking about the financial institution, like compliances. So let's talk a little bit about like Twitter and, you know, Instagram. And, you know, of course we heard a lot about the rights what their rights were when we were going through some political stuff in the United States. But what do they have certain compliances that they have to abide by? And what are their responsibilities of monitoring predators um, that could lead to human trafficking under their platforms? Um, <clears throat> so for Facebook uh, and all the other platforms, it's kind of like, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on right now. I'm not really up to speed, but I, I know it's a problem where majority of this exploitation and grooming does come from social media. So Facebook's going to be implementing end-to-end uh, -end encryption, which means they won't be able to scan those pictures for a unique hash and kind of attribute them to child exploitation, or they won't be able to run it through an AI to figure out age detection or nudity detection or all the other stuff and get the context. So, you know, I've seen quite a few cases forwarded from, from these social medias like Snapchat to NickMick to a local law enforcement, then a local law enforcement will reach out to me and ask for assistance with it. Well, uh, yeah, because we know most of the young kids aren't on Facebook. You know, they're more on Instagram and Snapchat, and it seems like it's just mayhem on those. So what do you know anything about what they're doing? Which one, Facebook? Well, not Facebook, because I think Facebook is really, you know, you don't have the younger kids on Facebook. They're more on Snapchat, and and now, um, you know, what's it called, the... TikTok, you know, so so what are those what are those CEOs and those CISOs doing to keep those platforms safe? Not enough. Not enough. TikTok and I yeah. and I mean if your child uses it, stop. And can you tell our audience why they should stop? Because it's a predator magnet. I mean, if you go on there there's predators everywhere just you know, kind of looking at your kids, talking to them, trying to meet up, you know, could end up in a trafficking or some bad situation, like missing children. And when I was watching, and I'm sure you've probably watched uh, the movie, maybe you haven't, the social, what was that movie called? Um, it was about all the platforms. Uh, I forgot the name of it. Uh, 
It's all about social media. But what was interesting is many of those CEOs and many of those, you know, people running some of the the executives of Twitter and Instagram, you know, they absolutely do not allow their kids on social media. (laughs) Yeah, they know why. And I feel like that says a lot right there if they're not letting their kids on social media. But yeah, that was their, you know, many of them, a few of them I've researched what they're doing now. And, you know, a couple of them, I forgot from which platform he's advocating for kids not to be on social media. So it's still not enough They're, You know, it's, it's out of control, but um, let's talk a little bit about artificial intelligence and uh, machine learning. Can you tell me our, and our listeners what you're doing, how, how this gets involved and what kind of AI and machine learning are you using and how does it help you guys? So a lot of the partners that we use, um, they have AI and machine learning, uh, for instance, our financial intelligence, we use sensing, as a, it's entity resolution that includes AI and ML. Uh, and we kind of plug that in as a brain to consilience, which, you know, what we use to cross-reference all these data sets and graph it out um, for blockchain. Uh, it handles a lot of our risk scoring. So we're able to rate transactions and wallets without having attribution data at times. Uh, just to let us know, is that malicious, uh, has it been interacting with, you know, any criminals, uh, et cetera. Uh, we have uh, a data lake that we use with Constella Intelligence. Um, so that's, I think there's 100 billion breach data records. But we do lookups based on phone number, email address, even IP addresses, and we kind of attribute them to people. And, I mean, I can even, from a P.O. box, kind of pivot and be able to find the actual address, you know, based on identifiers. Uh, You can also find different phone numbers based on one email address. Uh, You can find, again, different email addresses based on one phone number. It all depends which way you want to pivot. So can you give us an example? Um, Because... It, that's a little technical for many of us. So can you break that down to layman's terms of how you've used it and, and, and what, what you've accomplished with that? So we use it in probably about half a dozen applications, uh, different ones. Uh, we use it to kind of find links. Uh, for instance, the human trafficking data set and the entity resolution and uh, the PPP loan data, uh, we're able to filter down to that and get active cases that we can investigate. Uh, The blockchain stuff, it it helps us with the blockchain forensics and tracing the funds, following the money, uh, determining what's associated, uh, if it's associated with the same person, if it's associated with a different person, Our breach data, again, it helps us pivot on any identifier to try to find uh, more breadcrumbs. Again, you can look up a phone number and you can find multiple email addresses. Or you can look up an email address and find multiple phone numbers. Or you can find an address from just putting in the P.O. box. It's, uh, you know, their home address. So usually people use uh, P.O. boxes to hide their identity. But, I mean, if there's a phone number or email associated with that P.O. box, then you can kind of pivot and get that other information that's associated with it. Uh, We also use it in data analytics. Uh, For instance, we use Siren uh, for investigative intelligence. It allows us to take multiple data sets and find the links in between them. So you could have... uh, You know, let's say if there's a a database on businesses, there's a database on uh, businesses that got funding, and there's another data set that you want to kind of link everybody to and find, kind of ask the data questions and get uh, logical answers to it. And, I mean, you train these models to make sure they're picking up the right stuff, 
and, you know, giving you actionable intelligence. So um, thank you, uh, Ivan. He said it was The Social Dilemma. You can find it on Netflix. It's, um, I definitely think it's very, a very interesting show for all of us that are in cyber. I would recommend everyone to take a look at that. But uh, Guadalupe asked, what exactly is a PPP loan data? So that's uh, PPP loans are forgivable loans from the government. And the reason why we look into this, it's because we're looking for businesses that are potentially involved in trafficking. Well, we also, once we identify those, we want to see, well, what else can we find? And we can run it through multiple different data sets. That's just one use case. And did you, did you find, was there a lot? I mean, that's crazy that so many people had problems getting that loan, but you have traffickers that are getting that. Was it a high rate of people getting that loan? It was over 900. Wow. That's crazy. And our government just, or whatever, I, I don't know what you guys, if you're, you're different than what was happening in the United States. Was that from Canadian government or United States or a combination? U.S. for those. Wow. So did that help you by having that? Did it, did it hone in on more of these traffickers? Did, were you able to, to make some uh, forward movements with yeah, that? Yeah, we tested some out, uh, but uh, the majority of them were waiting for internship program. So we have, I think, a dozen interns coming on board. So they'll be investigating these. We'll be prioritizing them uh, ahead of other investigations. So I would imagine there's not enough people for all the work that's out there for you to do. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's just one little use case that we've done. I mean, there's tons of PPP loan fraud in the U.S. You're hearing about it. Uh, all over LinkedIn if you have compliance people, but they'll be talking about it, but we have our own use case. So it's human trafficking and PPP loans. We kind of want to filter out the rest because, you know, we don't want to deal with everything. We have our focus. And if it's anything related to children or trafficking, then, you know, that's what we want to focus on as an organization. Wow. It's just, it's, it's astounding that that money was going for that. And I don't understand how these financial institutions, uh, that there's not more red flags because, you know, it, it, yeah, I, I guess I won't comment anymore on that. But um, proper data sets are not doing their proper due diligence. They're just, I, I imagine, just taking what's coming in. And if you're in front of the line, I guess you get the money so but now there's on those pp loans there is still a lot of um you still have to do some backup work and provide the government some what that money was used for in order for it to be forgiven so when that paperwork's coming back in is that more of a trail for you well on the business information uh we, we don't usually hear back on these so we'll see it in a news release or something uh we very rarely hear back from law enforcement, maybe 10% of the time, one in 10 cases we'll hear back. But, uh, you know, a lot of the time uh, we might get a little message that, hey, we've arrested the guy. Um, you know, uh, that's more with local law enforcement. Uh, they'll give us updates, but generally we don't hear back. Well, I'm very excited for you to come on the show with this panel I put together because none of you guys really know each other and you all kind of do a different thing. And to even have Victor DeMora, who is a federal police investigator on the human trafficking side. Do, did you happen to know who that was? Uh, no, I don't. So how would you differentiate what you're doing and what he's doing? We're more proactive, reactive, uh, I would say. Okay. So are you, what tools, what are you guys doing? Do you feel like it is one of your initiatives to, um, like, what are you doing to educate the corporations? Again, I know there's not enough of you to educate. What can you do in a group effort? What can we do as, you know, educators out here to help, you know, promote your initiatives more? 
to promote the initiative, um, you know, check out our website. There's a resources section. You can see more of what we do. Uh, you know, promote uh, promote to your financial institution. Ask them, do you have an anti-human trafficking program uh, implemented? You know, from the data we got back, there was only 10% that actually had a comprehensive anti-human trafficking program. Wow. And why is that? I mean, is the federal institutions not enforcing that kind of compliance? Uh, nope, they're not. Uh, so in 2018, FinCEN released the anti-human trafficking or human trafficking checkbox. So normally when they're filling out suspicious activity reports, it's fraud, money laundering, uh, hundreds of others. Right? But human trafficking was just added. And, you know, unless uh, it, it affects a company's bottom line, like it's going to cost people to implement these programs. Plus, they're relying on their current systems, transaction monitoring. They don't have highly curated data sets like the one that we provide. Um, I mean, one of, the, one of the first proof of concepts we did uh, you know, they brought down a multi-million dollar ring consisting of, I think it was over 14 massage parlors. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you got that just from a hit from one of your account base and our data set, so. Well, with the large rise of ransomware and cyber attacks and the financial institutions seem to be getting hit pretty hard, um, they seem, I mean, it, it's not even, I was watching something on the news and they were talking about interest rates and that's not even their problem right now. Their problem is cybersecurity and the institutions getting hit so hard. So um, do you think because, you know, so many of these CEOs are starting to finally put more of their budgets into cybersecurity that they'll take that portion of human trafficking a little more serious because they are, all eyes are going on cybersecurity? Not so much. That's why I'm trying to bridge the gap. I'm trying to promote, uh, you know, getting child exploitation file hashes into these cybersecurity products so you can detect CSAM, which is child sexual abuse material, you know, whether it be on a network, whether it be on a USB stick, whether it's a BYOD device, so remote uh, home devices, or whether it's going in or out of your internet connection, you should be able to detect, alert, and report this content. So because we're getting closer to wrapping up, when you're talking about these, like, what would you say? What would you tell our listeners? What, when you're talking about recording them and detecting them, are you saying you as an individual in your home should take responsibility of what's happening? In well, it's more uh, businesses and corporations. Um, I mean, they all use cybersecurity products, right? Mm -hmm. Any virus? Yeah. Do they have a firewall or router or, you know, businesses usually have enterprise grade or business grade firewalls. They don't really go out to Walmart and buy D-Link and, you know, set it up at their business. It's not really good security hygiene, but you know what? If business grade firewalls, they have different detections like with MD5 hash. So do web content filters, some of them. Uh, so do spam filters. So your email, you have the web content, which does your internet traffic or your firewall, your antivirus or endpoint detection and response. Uh, you know, you plug in a USB stick, it scans. You know, what are those signatures made of? Hashes. So, so that's how forensics applications detect this material. Same with cybersecurity products. There's no difference. I'm just trying to get everyone to treat job abuse material as malware. What would your final message be? Because we're coming upon the closing um, that you would like to uh, leave with all of our listeners on how to help bridge the gap of human trafficking and threat intelligence. If you had to say, give your message in 30 seconds. So I, I promote them if they own a business, uh, you know, ask the IT, 
can you detect this content on our network? Yes or no. Uh, if they say no, then tell them, let's get it done. Let's get this implemented. Contact your, uh, you know, the vendors, uh, whether it be your antivirus or firewall, uh, security operations center, uh, security information event management or source systems, uh, sec security orchestration automation and response, and get these hashes implemented into the products. If enough people go to the vendor and ask for this, they will put it in. Okay. Well, Larry Cameron, he's a CISO at Anti-Human Trafficking Intelligence Initiative, ATII. If you want to look it up on LinkedIn, he has a resource page of what we can do. Thank you very much for being on our show. And if you want to um, hear more about him, you can join us on May 13th at the Canadian Cybersecurity Event. It's going to be a virtual event. You can check it out on futureconevents.com. Thank you for being here today, Larry. I uh, would love to have you back again. Um, thank you for all you're doing to help save all of these kids. And just thank you for the mission that you're doing. Um, thanks, everyone, for joining another episode of And Security for All. We look forward to seeing you next week. Next week, I will have Deidre Diamond from Cyber SN. That was a show that was rescheduled a couple of weeks ago because of technical issues. So please check us out next week. You can find us on any of your favorite podcast stations, iHeartRadio, iTunes, Google Play Store. Please come and check out um, And Security for All. You can check out all our past speakers. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe, stay well, and stay secure. See you next week. Thank you for tuning into And Security for All. Be sure to join your host, Kim Hakem, for another episode of the show next Friday at noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Business Channel. And don't forget, you can follow Kim on LinkedIn by searching for Kim Hakem. That's Kim, H-A-K-I-M, to keep yourself posted on all of her upcoming cybersecurity events.